Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we're going to look at Resident Evil, a survival horror game developed and published by Capcom, originally released for the Sony PlayStation in 1996 and later remastered, remade, reimagined, and re-released on a ton of different platforms over the period of many years. We're going to start talking about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 53. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com, a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT, and we also have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes below. So feel free to join or reach out in any one of those mechanisms. Discord's probably the best because we have a lot of great discussion out there. So if you really want to be engaged in the community, I encourage you to join the Discord server. It is pretty darn awesome. And part of that awesomeness is the Weekend Gaming Challenge. We had yet another Weekend Gaming Challenge, and this weekend was all about Resident Evil games. Because, hey, this episode is about Resident Evil, and I figured why not do a Weekend Gaming Challenge focused on at least the first four Resident Evil games, the classic Resident Evil games, so to speak. So after this weekend, ISO once again tearing it up on the challenges. He got 19 additional points this weekend. That brings him up to a total of 51 points. He remains in the lead. Rich Senewald got two points. That brings him up to 25 points in second place. And out of nowhere, left-handed guitarist did not complete a Resident Evil challenge, but he did complete the Pilot Wings monthly challenge, which got him 10 extra points. That jumped him up to third place with 14 points. And then rounding out the leaderboard is Boogie Gnu with 11 points, Blue Fates with six points, and I Am The Dizzle with two points. Once again, you do not have to be the leader to win prizes. You just have to participate. So if anybody is interested, join us out on Discord. It is a ton of fun. Our first season does wrap up at the end of this next weekend. So October 1st, our first season ends and the winners will be announced. So if you're interested, I do encourage you to come out to Discord and join in on the fun. I should also mention that we do have a Patreon as well. That is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. We do a new Patreon exclusive podcast every other week. This week is episode number five, where I will be ranking all of the mainline Resident Evil games, which for me means Resident Evil zero through eight, as well as Resident Evil Code Veronica. So I will give you my personal ranking on the Resident Evils. That should be a good time. Join the Patreon if you'd like. It has a lot of cool stuff out there. Some Patreon-exclusive blog posts, the Patreon-exclusive podcast. You get a special Patreon channel out on Discord. A lot of fun out there, so feel free to check it out if you feel so inclined. I also want to give a shout-out to our Pantheon Patreon members. They are ISO, Rich Senewald, and David Morton. Thank you guys for supporting the show, and thank you all for supporting the show. Whether you contribute on Patreon or just listen every single week, I am truly excited that you're here. I hope all of you are as well. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. Where does it sit 
in the overall spectrum of history in the video and computer game industry. And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we give a quantitative analysis or assign a bunch of stars to different games, but we do look at every single game from several different perspectives. We look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it may have been released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. You should still play it today. Highly recommended. It has pretty much not aged a day. I heavily recommend that you go out and play those games today. Beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend them, especially if you have nostalgia for the game or you enjoy the genre in which the game exists. You are pretty much guaranteed to have a good time. They're not quite Pantheon level, but they are still incredibly worthwhile experiences and you should still play them today. Just beyond the Golden Oldies are our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the games that I cannot recommend to the broad population. They've either aged a bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. You could still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. For, by all means, go for it, give it a shot. But I cannot recommend these games to the general population. And then beyond our mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Resident Evil. Resident Evil is a survival horror game developed and published by Capcom, originally released for the Sony PlayStation back in 1996. Before we can talk about Resident Evil, we need to dive back into the history of the survival horror genre. Now, I recognize that for many people, Resident Evil was their first exposure to survival horror. And in fact, the term survival horror was coined as part of the marketing campaign for the release of the first Resident Evil back in 1996. So you might turn to me and say, well, okay, history of survival horror, that pretty much just begins at Resident Evil. As a term, yeah, you're right. But the true origins of the genre started well before Chris Redfield and Jill Valentine explored an eerie mansion in the mid-90s. And if we look back into computer and video game history, we will see several titles that, while not defined as survival horror at the time, most certainly fall under that categorization, and even influenced how the genre would eventually evolve. First, though, I want to provide a definition of what I mean when I use the phrase survival horror, just to make sure we're all starting from the same perspective. So, for the purposes of this discussion, 
A true survival horror game is a title that is focused on exploration and puzzle solving, with combat not so much the central purpose of the experience. Though a lot of times combat is one of the driving forces behind how you manage fairly limited resources such as health items or weapon ammo. Going a little bit further, typically, games in the survival horror genre require some form of inventory management, and a lot of times these games force the player to make somewhat difficult choices as to what items to carry on them, and what items to either leave behind or, in some cases, store in some sort of safe camp or inventory box. This inventory management can also include a degree of item manipulation, leading to the integration of inventory-based puzzles, such as opening a box stored in the player's inventory, or figuring out how to turn one item into another for the purposes of progressing through the game. Generally speaking, the odds are stacked against you in games like this, and the situations you encounter can create a feeling of helplessness and dread. In some instances, especially games released early in the genre's existence, you could find yourself in an unwinnable situation, either because you exhausted your resources, sprung a trap that left your character or party decimated, or ran out of limited save opportunities, making it much more difficult to continue without a safety net. Exploration itself can even sometimes be challenging in survival horror games, as oftentimes the path forward is blocked in some way, either by a locked door, disabled elevator, unpowered generator, or some other barrier. In this way, forward progression becomes, in many instances, kind of like a puzzle to solve, which eventually leads to unlocking new areas of the game world for exploration. A lot of times, players are presented with a barrier to progression fairly early on that doesn't become accessible until much later in the game, which serves to ramp up the curiosity. So just a quick hypothetical example. Let's say that you just entered a run-down abandoned warehouse, and you see an employees-only office that is seemingly locked and inaccessible. Down the hall, maybe you see a service elevator that leads into some unknown basement of the building, but there's no power to the elevator controls. You explore the warehouse, eventually finding a key to the employees-only office. You enter the office, only to find a vent leading outside to an alley along the side of the building. You continue to explore and play the game, but you keep wondering what the heck that warehouse elevator was for. And as you discover additional pieces of game lore through exploration, you learn that something bad happened in the warehouse basement 20 years earlier. Your curiosity is now piqued, so you continue to play the game, and eventually, hours later, you finally find a fuse that you bring back to the warehouse from the beginning of the game, restoring power to the elevator, which you can finally descend, and you find the answers to all of your questions that lead, eventually, to the ending sequence of the entire game. You get that sense of accomplishment that accompanies overcoming an obstacle that has plagued you for a significant amount of time, and you feel relief that the tension that had been building the entire game is now released. So that was hypothetical, but it was also a fairly typical template for the kinds of progression puzzles that are commonly seen in survival horror games, which, by the way, for the record, I personally enjoy immensely. Looked at in another, much less verbose way, most survival horror games involve some form of backtracking to make progress, meaning you return to areas you've already explored, most of the time with either additional information or new inventory items that can help you progress further into the game. The other key aspect of the genre, and one that comes directly from the name of the genre itself, is the concept of injecting horror elements into the experience. 
Whether you're talking about diseased zombies, prehistoric creatures, or extraterrestrial life forms, the majority of survival horror games take some form of inspiration from the traditional horror tropes that you see in a lot of movies, television, and other aspects of popular culture. These horror elements serve to provide the backdrop and setting for the overall experience, and they're often combined with a story that is conveyed via journal entries or newspaper clippings or some other passive gameplay mechanic that doles out pieces of lore and tidbits of information that, when combined together, present an integrated and detailed plot. This combination of setting and story development, combined with the more gamey elements discussed previously, are what form our definition of survival horror. So interestingly, our definition of survival horror runs parallel in many ways to another type of game that we've discussed a few times previously, that being the point-and-click adventure genre. It might not be immediately apparent, but think about it. Survival horror games include inventory-based puzzles, item manipulation, puzzle solving, albeit much more simplistic than most adventure titles, and environment exploration, all of which are pretty much staples of adventure games. There have even been interviews with survival horror designers who state how adventure games have inspired their efforts. And when you play these games, especially those that don't feature a ton of combat, you definitely get the sense that you're playing an adventure game-like experience. Or at least that's the feeling that I usually get when I play these games. Anyway, I know it might feel like we spent a lot of time talking about the definition of the genre, but that's only because I wanted to help narrow our focus as we dive into the history behind survival horror. And if we look at games fitting our definition, we can begin to see several early gaming experiences that laid the foundation for what the genre would eventually become. To start, we're going to go all the way back to February of 1982 which is when the game Haunted House was released for the Atari 2600 console. The game allows the player to enter a haunted house, as you might expect given the title of the game, with the goal of surviving across nine levels of increasing difficulty, eventually escaping the house by finding and combining four pieces of an urn, all the while avoiding and, occasionally, fighting a series of enemies that inhabited the house, like tarantulas, bats, and ghosts. So far, the game sounds like a fairly typical Atari game, and if you ever look up gameplay videos of the title, you'll see the traditional Atari-style graphics, where you pretty much need to use your imagination in order to see what the game tells you you should be seeing. The thing that sets it apart, though, and why we're talking about it right now, are the interesting mechanics that form the foundation for the game. First, and possibly most important, is the fact that inventory management played a huge role in the game, because you could only carry a single item with you at a time. Now, this was a game from 1982, so we're not talking about huge numbers of items or significant inventories to manage, but you did have to make some difficult choices regarding which items to pick up and use at any given time. As an example, assume you're walking through one of the hallways in the house and you come across a ghost. If you've picked up the scepter you'd be in pretty good shape, as the scepter could be used to ward off the ghost without too much difficulty. If, however, you were carrying a different item at the time, then the only option you would have is to avoid the ghost and hope to get away unscathed, which could prove challenging, especially considering the ghost is able to pass through walls. Similarly, assume you come across a locked door at some point in your journey. If you had picked up a key previously, and remember, you can only carry one inventory item at a time. So if you have a key, you could approach the door and unlock it, exploring the room beyond the door. 
If you didn't have a key, though, then you'd have to find a key and exchange whatever inventory item you might be carrying. Furthermore, many levels of the game had areas and walls that were effectively hidden, requiring you to use a match in order to see where you were going. And incidentally, the match did not take up a spot in your inventory. It was considered a core skill of the player character. That's actually a concept that we're going to see repeated in future survival horror games, so just keep that in mind. This foundation for Haunted House of inventory management, combined with the stress that resulted from potentially not having the right item at the time, coupled with managing your visibility while continuing to avoid death, formed the main gameplay loop for the entire game. And that is why some individuals, in particular a GameSpy article from back in 2002, claim that Haunted House is the first true survival horror game. If we look back at our definition, we can certainly see where that would make sense. But the fact remains that Haunted House was hampered somewhat by the era in which it was developed, because the technology just wasn't yet readily available to create an experience that would grip players and make them feel that they truly just survived a harrowing ordeal in a haunted mansion. It was survival, sure, but true horror? Eh, maybe a bit of a stretch. Regardless, Haunted House still serves as an early foundational effort that contributed to the development of the survival horror genre. Over the next few years, technology would continue to advance, and the major players in the industry would begin to shift, eventually resulting in the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES, becoming the prominent video game console in North America. For a long period of time, Nintendo could do no wrong, and the massive console install base led to a huge number of games being released, including some titles that were licensed and based on movie, television, or other entertainment properties. We have talked about licensed titles before, and we've seen examples of licensed titles that were good, like DuckTales, and examples of licensed titles that were not, like, well, like a lot of them. It's pretty clear that many licensed games were often made to capitalize on a pop culture fad or trend with the hopes of making tons of money, not necessarily to deliver an amazing standalone game experience. I mentioned the whole licensing thing because the next game we're going to look at, the 1989 survival horror role-playing game Sweet Home, was itself based on a Japanese movie of the same name. What set this apart from other licensed titles, though, was the fact that, as far as I can tell, the game and the movie were made concurrently and in conjunction with each other, and were basically marketed as a pair rather than distinct properties. This is seen most directly through the interactions that the game's director, Tokuru Fujiwara, had with key creative individuals from the film, namely its producer, Juzo Itami, and its director, Kiyoshi Kurosawa. At the time, Fujiwara was a fairly well-respected game director, having worked on various titles for the video game company Capcom, including Ghosts and Goblins in 1985 and Bionic Commando in 1987. When Fujiwara was assigned the task of creating the new horror-themed game based on the upcoming film Sweet Home for the Nintendo Famicom system, he was allowed the opportunity to tour the film's set and discuss the project with both Itami and Kurosawa, and in a move that would prove to be fruitful. Kurosawa told Fujiwara that while the game should embody the setting and the general mood of the film, there was no need to feel overly restricted, and that the game had the autonomy to branch out beyond the story the film was portraying. As we've seen before, this is not always the case with a licensed game, and specifically when we talked about the Terminator, development teams were told explicitly that every game had to follow a certain set of fairly restrictive guidelines in adapting those films to a playable experience. 
Luckily for Fujiwara, he didn't have those same restrictions. So after getting the backing of the film's producer and director, he began the process of creating the game, settling on a horror role-playing experience set within the house depicted in the film. To provide a little bit of context, the film version of Sweet Home tells the story of a crew of filmmakers and art preservationists who, seeking out a lost painting from a renowned and now deceased artist, decide to explore the man's abandoned home, only to discover a grisly tale surrounding the death of his infant son and the eventual haunting of the house by the artist's wife. Throughout the film, the film crew encounters various ghostly and phantasmic events, eventually leading to the final confrontation between the surviving members of the party and the evil spirit currently residing in the home. The game follows the film's overarching plot pretty closely, with the player controlling a party of five characters, each representing a character from the film. The game was presented as a role-playing experience, similar in many ways to games like Final Fantasy, with random enemy encounters, experience points and leveling, and turn-based combat. Taken on those elements alone, you'd have a solid, but not necessarily outstanding, horror role-playing game. What sets this apart, though, are the other mechanics and elements of the experience, which is what has led a lot of people to declare that Sweet Home is in fact the first true survival horror game in gaming history. To begin, let's take a look at the overall method of inventory management and item collection, two aspects of survival horror that we've touched on previously. In the game, each character has a very limited inventory, where you can pick up and hold only three items at a time, in addition to having a dedicated weapon slot, and finally, a special character-only ability slot that houses some unique item that only that specific character can use. As an example, One of the many obstacles scattered throughout the game's environment is a rope barring passage to various areas of the house. One of the characters has a lighter as his unique item, which can be used to burn through the rope and allow everyone to progress further. No other character has that ability, though you can find items throughout the game that serve as analogs for each character's special ability, although those items take up one of the precious three inventory slots allotted to a given character, which makes inventory management even more difficult. Because of that, it pays to have a character with the needed unique ability around, since it makes collecting and managing other items a whole lot easier. There are also a number of obstacles that can only be overcome using one of the many items discoverable through exploration of the game world, and in this way, progression through the house is somewhat gated by the items that you have available to you, in addition to being gated by the characters you have at your disposal at any point in time. Because, as it relates to the five characters you control, there are some interesting mechanics at play that serve to ratchet up the tension. For one, there are certain traps and pitfalls that sometimes occur that might split you up from the rest of your party, like getting randomly teleported to a different section of the house. Or you might walk into a room and have the floor literally fall out from under you, requiring someone else from your party to throw you a rope to get you back to solid ground. Or you may get overwhelmed in a battle, resulting in the permanent death of one or more of your party members. And yes, you heard that right. While you could control five characters throughout the game, if one were to fall in battle or to a particularly nasty trap, you would lose access to that character forever, and would therefore also lose access to that character's special ability, which is why the inventory-based analogous items are important, because they may be, in some instances, the only way of progressing further into the game. Depending on which characters survive by the time you reach the end of the game, you can experience one of five different endings— 
though, as you might expect, they're not quite as in-depth as what you'd see from modern RPG titles. Still, though, it's always interesting when a game attempts to reflect how player actions drive endgame results, and especially during this era of gaming, having multiple endings was definitely a rarity. Going back to the game's mechanics, other than being told the reason for visiting the haunted house in the first place, the game's story is conveyed mostly through hidden notes, diary entries, and phantasmic messages brought about through examining the many paintings hidden throughout the mansion. These notes and messages are often sometimes cryptic, but for the studious gamer who explores every nook and cranny, you can eventually piece together the story, and in the end, it is a completely worthwhile and engaging experience to figure out exactly what happened, and what you need to do to save yourself and bring peace to the spirits inhabiting the house. Looking at its overall structure and framework, it's pretty easy to see why Sweet Home was considered by many to be the first true survival horror game ever created. Unfortunately, and one of the primary reasons why Sweet Home is not as widely known as many classic gaming titles, it was never released outside of Japan, which means that the only official way to play the game is to play the title in Japanese. There were multiple reasons behind the decision not to port the title to other regions, most importantly the content and story, because this was probably one of the more gory and mature-themed titles that Nintendo allowed in their entire ecosystem, and it was definitely not the standard family fare that they were known for. Luckily, though, a bit over 20 years ago, a group of fans saw this, and they figured that this was a title worth preserving and experiencing in other territories, so they set out to create a ROM hack that translated the entire game into English. Now, as a side note, I did play this version of the game previously, and I've got to say, you would never be able to tell that this was not an official release. The entire experience, both the game and the translation, was awesome, and I would encourage everyone to give it a shot if you're interested in experiencing the title that would serve as the inspiration for many survival horror games that followed. Anyway, following the release of Sweet Home in 1989, the gaming industry itself was going through another transformation, with the traditional pixel-based titles of 8- and 16-bit consoles beginning to be challenged by rapid advances in computer technology, making their way to computer games and eventually the home console market. In the early to mid-90s, computer game developers began to utilize three-dimensional polygon-based graphics in their titles, replacing the two-dimensional sprites that were prevalent at the time with scenes that could be navigated as a fully realized 3D space. One of those early 3D titles was actually another example of a survival horror experience, so let's talk about that one, which is the original Alone in the Dark, developed by Infogram and released to the MS-DOS computer platform in 1992. Similar to both Haunted House and Sweet Home, Alone in the Dark tasks the player with investigating and escaping a haunted mansion, using a variety of weapons to battle the mansion's inhabitants while avoiding death, managing scarce resources, and a limited inventory. As well as solving puzzles, by the way, to open up new areas to progress into, all the while discovering clues strewn about the environment to learn more about the underlying story. Unlike the games that preceded it, though, Alone in the Dark introduced a number of advancements that would serve to evolve the survival horror genre. For one, at the start of the game, players are given the choice of one of two protagonists to control, either a male private investigator or the niece of a mysteriously deceased artist, both of whom have their own motivations for entering the haunted mansion and trying to figure out what's going on. The second, and perhaps biggest innovation introduced by the game as an evolution of the genre, 
has to do with the overall artistic style and graphics engine for the game, which was designed, or at least intended to be, a fully three-dimensional experience with true polygon-based characters, environments, items, puzzles, and inventories. Alone in the Dark was the brainchild of a programmer named Frederick Reynal, who back in the early 90s was working on a tool designed to create and animate three-dimensional characters. Around the same time, in 1991, Reynal was approached by the CEO of the company, Bruno Bonnell, to develop a game whose main gameplay mechanic was navigating completely dark scenes using a match to highlight snapshots of an individual area. Reynal, believing this idea to be perfect fodder for a horror gaming experience, convinced Bonnell to let him try to make a horror game as his next project, and with the CEO's approval, Reynal set off to begin creating what would eventually become Alone in the Dark. Now, Renal had fairly high aspirations for the game, but he was also keenly aware of how difficult it would be for computers of the time to render realistic graphics. Believing that then-modern computer technology wasn't capable of rendering graphics that would create fear and dread among players, Renal decided to tell most of the story elements via text. Still, his plan was to create a fully realized three-dimensional world, with real photographs to be used as the foundation for three-dimensional rooms placed throughout the game's haunted mansion. The thing is, though, that also proved to be challenging, and eventually it was determined that creating fully realized 3D spaces would be too difficult to include with the game. So, each background in the game was actually made of two-dimensional images, while characters and items were true three-dimensional models made of polygons. Because 3D models were being combined with 2D backdrops, each and every scene in the game had to be presented very deliberately so as to maintain the illusion of the player traversing a true three-dimensional space. So the game's development team settled on the concept of utilizing fixed camera angles and various scene and camera angle transitions as the player explored the game's environments. Interestingly, while the reason behind the fixed camera angles was purely technical, that restriction actually ended up improving the game's tension and horror elements, as the design team was able to frame scenes using cinematic techniques, striving to create the most dramatic and scary camera shots that would, ultimately, serve to instill a sense of dread in the player. Another way of creating a sense of unease in the player involved the mechanisms by which your character could die, which in some instances were completely random and oftentimes unfair. While such death traps weren't pervasive throughout the experience, any death that you can't in some way foresee is likely not a well-designed death, or at a minimum, could potentially backfire and create resentment in the player, similar to how deaths in old-school Sierra point-and-click adventure titles could come literally out of nowhere and halt all player progress, seemingly for no other reason than just to punish the player. Now, I'm not saying that Alone in the Dark was as absurdly unfair as some of those early Sierra deaths, but there were situations that were unpredictable in a random way, rather than in a dread-inducing way. It's a small nit in an otherwise well-designed game for the time, but something that warrants mentioning. Alone in the Dark would end up being critically acclaimed and generally enjoyed amongst the broader gaming community, and would lead to several sequels, and most disturbingly, a couple of movies based on the game, the first of which was directed by Ewa Ball, starring Tara Reid, along with some other notable actors, and would be widely considered to be one of the worst films ever made. While Alone in the Dark's cinematic legacy would be, in a word, limited, its legacy in gaming would be felt much more strongly. 
Let's continue forward to 1993 and rejoin Tokuru Fujiwara, who you might recall was the game director behind the previously discussed Sweet Home, one of the first true survival horror experiences in gaming, at least as it relates to our definition of the genre. In 1989, console and computer capabilities were not yet advanced enough to truly enable Fujiwara to realize the vision of the game he wanted to create. While Sweet Home was considered by many, at least after the fact, to be one of the better 8-bit games created, it was constrained by the graphics and computing power available at the time. Fujiwara reassessed the state of the industry in the early 90s, and seeing the advances made by games and technology, he decided that the time was right to return to the survival horror genre, and he suggested that a remake of Sweet Home would be in order, utilizing the latest technologies to create a truly harrowing, scary, and dread-inducing experience. Fujiwara, however, did not want to direct the title himself, so he looked across the internal team at Capcom to see who he might be able to entrust with bringing his Sweet Home remake to life. And he finally settled upon a young developer named Shinji Mikami, who had worked on several titles to date, most notably the Super Nintendo version of Disney's Aladdin, which ended up selling pretty well, around 1.75 million copies. The reason for choosing Mikami, interestingly, was that he actually was not a fan of horror in general, and he was pretty opposed to the concept of working on a horror experience, because he had a great deal of fear for horror and scary kinds of experiences. Despite this, Fujiwara wasn't deterred, and in an interview from 2009, he explained the reasoning for selecting someone with intense fear of horror to lead what he hoped would become a flagship horror gaming experience. To paraphrase, Fujiwara said that he couldn't possibly trust the creation of a harrowing horror experience to someone who felt no fear, because they wouldn't understand how to make something scary. Instead, working with someone who did in fact experience fear was extremely important, because that kind of person would be able to recognize what would work in a horror experience. Putting aside the general thought that Shinji Mikami was effectively forced to work on a genre that he had a severe dislike of, I can kind of see the reasoning behind Fujiwara's decision, especially given the genre that we're talking about. Now, I'm not sure that that same logic would apply to all gaming genres. Just as an example, I don't know if I would ask someone who hated first-person shooters to design the next Doom, but within the context of understanding what's frightening and how to play on those fears, it did seem like Fujiwara was on to something. So... Mikami would become the lead on his new project, which, as you might guess, is what would eventually evolve to become Resident Evil. With development beginning in 1993, Mikami would spend the first six months of his time designing the basic experience, more so from the perspective of script development, storyboarding, and other less technical kinds of endeavors meant to form a solid foundation before anything was really translated into a gaming kind of context. Interestingly, what came out of that initial design was a prototype that would go through multiple iterations of trying different things before Mikami and the team finally found a winning formula. For one, the original design for the game was centered around the concept of utilizing a first-person perspective for the player to view and interact with the world, with the thought being that if you wanted immersion and terror, there really is no better way to drive that than to put the player directly in the shoes of the character he or she is inhabiting, with a first-person window into the game world. The very earliest prototypes of the game did just that, presenting a first-person experience based on traditional Japanese ghost and psychological horror, which was very similar in concept to the themes of Sweet Home. 
those thematic elements would eventually be replaced by a more westernized view of horror, settling on the zombie and undead mythos popularized by George Romero, amongst other filmmakers. The goal was to use the first-person perspective to drive player agency, and throughout the game, the environment that the player would be walking through would change to reflect actions he or she had taken, creating immediate and long-lasting immersion. But looking at the resulting prototype, the team felt that the game wasn't really embodying horror. Instead, it was more similar to the new wave of first-person shooter games entering the market, most prominently id Software's Doom. As you might imagine, this wasn't exactly what the team was going for. So several factors contributed to the disconnect between the original horror vision for the first-person title and what would ultimately feel more like a Doom clone, with the most significant issue being that rendering a three-dimensional first-person perspective with the kind of realistic graphics that would instill fear in the player, that was just still a bit out of reach for the technology of the time. To put things into perspective, in the early 1990s, the concept of 3D acceleration wasn't really a thing yet, and in fact, even mentioning the term 3D acceleration might be unfamiliar to many people, because nowadays nobody talks about the difference between 2D and 3D graphics card capabilities. You just buy a graphics card for your computer, or you purchase the latest and greatest home console, and you go home and you play games. But back in the early 90s, Most graphics were talked about in terms of pixels, not polygons, and creating three-dimensional-like spaces required workarounds that years later would be accomplished via common tools and engines. At the time, though, programming geniuses like John Carmack had to figure out how to trick computers into displaying what appeared to be three-dimensional images. In doing so, and because limitations in computing power in both the console and computer markets were fairly restrictive, you had to have a trade-off. In many cases, this came in the form of graphics. Creating a smooth, moving, real-time rendered first-person perspective title was possible, but to do so, the graphics fidelity had to be limited, otherwise you'd end up playing a slideshow. The other option was to utilize pre-rendered graphics, but that doesn't allow for the same kind of immersion and environmental changes that Mikami wanted to introduce into the game. Now, it was around this time that Mikami became aware of Alone in the Dark, and in particular, that game's fixed-camera third-person perspective, which ended up providing the creative jolt that the team needed to change how they would think about their own game, resulting in a redesigned effort with the first-person perspective scrapped in favor of pre-rendered pseudo-three-dimensional spaces that polygonal characters and items would inhabit. With that newfound direction in place, the team went off to begin creating their title in earnest, and along the way would try to implement different pieces of functionality that ended up not working all that well in the final game. Beyond the first-person perspective, the team experimented with the concept of cooperative gameplay, which ended up being difficult to implement and not very fun, so it was scrapped. Additional design-based elements, such as some supporting non-player characters and game areas outside of the core mansion setting that the team was focused on, were similarly proposed and ultimately either removed or repurposed entirely. Now, what I found most interesting, though, was that all of these scrapped ideas would, in some form or fashion, return later on in the series. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but suffice it to say, none of these ideas were ever truly forgotten. They just didn't get implemented until later in the series' lifetime. As the game was nearing completion, attention focused on the marketing and finishing touches for the title. In Japan, the game was always being developed under the title Biohazard, 
which makes perfect sense given the story for a game centering on a corrupt bio company called Umbrella and the various biological weapons and virus strains they were working on. In North America, though, using the name Biohazard would prove to be a problem because there were already copyrighted works and, in one case, a musical group that used the term. So the team began deliberating on what to call their new game in the West, eventually opening up an internal contest, which is where the winning submission, Resident Evil, was proposed. This, just like the original title Biohazard, mostly makes sense, because the game takes place primarily in a mansion, or residence, and the entire game is filled with terrifying evil entities. Beyond being named differently, the Japanese and American releases of the title would have several other differences. As an example, the Japanese release of the title was considerably more gory than the Americanized version, including more scenes of brutality and blood, which was evident even as early as the opening full-motion video sequence. In the American version of the game, the FMV cutscene is filmed in black and white and is fairly truncated, excluding a number of grisly scenes that were otherwise included in the Japanese sequence, which also, by the way, was in full color. Other more design-driven decisions resulted in changes between the Japanese and American versions of the game, including making the American version of the game a fair bit more difficult than its Japanese counterpart, with the removal of an auto-aiming mechanic and the reduction in the number of ink ribbons found throughout the game's environments, meaning that players couldn't save their progress as often. According to Mikami, Making the game harder was actually a request by the American Capcom staff, who wanted to make sure that players couldn't rent the game and complete it in a weekend, foregoing actually purchasing the title. Eventually, Mikami and his team would complete work on the title, and Resident Evil would be released in March of 1996 for the Sony PlayStation system. Almost immediately, the title would be met with critical acclaim and commercial success, becoming the highest-selling PlayStation title shortly after it was released, with lifetime sales across the original version and various remakes eclipsing 5 million units sold. This, by the way, was a far cry from the internal sales projections at Capcom, where Fujiwara himself expected the title to only sell around 200,000 units. Mikami also didn't think a horror title would sell well, and the rest of Capcom expected it to be a total dud. Quite the contrary, Resident Evil would go on to not only sell well in its original incarnation, but would spawn a multi-billion dollar media franchise spanning books, movies, sequels, animated shows, and remakes across all sorts of computing and console platforms. And it would also otherwise serve as one of the main reasons that created the resurgence in zombies being a part of popular culture, eventually leading to such creations as The Walking Dead and 28 Days Later. Critics and gamers alike would praise the game for its tension and gameplay, with many publications of the time naming Resident Evil as one of the best games of the year. There were some critiques, though, of the game's story and voice acting, which some would end up describing as laughable. I don't know that I'd personally categorize the story as laughable, but the voice acting? Uh, okay, yeah, I kind of see their point there, and we're going to talk more about that in just a little bit. From a purely gaming perspective... Resident Evil would serve to inspire both direct sequels and offshoots that span multiple genres, as well as other competing products like Silent Hill and other gaming franchises internal to Capcom itself, like Dino Crisis. The first Resident Evil would also be re-released multiple times, including director's cuts, remakes, and high-definition remasters of those same remakes, with the most recent release occurring back in 2015. 
Somewhat ironically, the survival horror elements that Resident Evil would introduce or refine, depending on the situation, would be somewhat discarded as the franchise continued to evolve. Starting with Resident Evil 4, the focus became more about the action set pieces of each game, culminating in Resident Evil 6, which was basically a Michael Bay action film on steroids. I know that the more action-oriented entries like Resident Evil 6 often receive negative comments, and I agree that it was pretty far removed from our definition of survival horror. But I also can see the merits of the game as a different experiment in the overall world of Resident Evil. And as I think you all know, I'm typically a glasses-half-full kind of guy, choosing to focus on the positives while still providing critique where necessary. In this case, the action-driven Resident Evils weren't really great representatives of survival horror, but they were still fine entries in the Resident Evil universe if looked at as distinct products. Resident Evil would, though, return to its survival horror roots with the seventh mainline entry in the series, which also saw a return to the first-person perspective originally attempted in the very first Resident Evil prototype. While that original prototype may not have worked as a first-person experience, Resident Evil 7 would be an absolutely stellar game, as was its sequel, and I enjoyed them both immensely. Beyond new mainline releases, Resident Evil remakes are alive and well, with the last few years giving us remakes of Resident Evil 2 through 4, with the latest release just happening a few months ago this year. These reimagined experiences capture all of the essence of the original titles, while modernizing and, in many ways, improving the experience. I know there are some differences that longtime fans of the series might take exception with, but from my perspective, they have all been outstanding releases and are definitely examples of how to do a remake right. I do often wonder whether we'll ever get a reimagined Resident Evil 1. I know there have been tons of remakes and remasters of that one already, but none of them utilize the over-the-shoulder perspective of the more recent remakes, and I really think they could do something special with the first title if they choose to revisit it. As for Shinji Mikami, the once-reluctant creator of Resident Evil who didn't like horror-inspired titles, he went on to effectively make a career in games by including horror elements in his titles, most recently through directing the Evil Within series, with Resident Evil inspirations firmly in place, by the way, and Ghostwire Tokyo, a more action-focused game, albeit with horror elements still included. It's kind of ironic how that played out, isn't it? To call Resident Evil influential would be a gross understatement. It was quite possibly one of the most important gaming releases in the 1990s, and while it may not have created the survival horror genre, it certainly popularized it. I would argue that after Resident Evil, survival horror truly found its footing in gaming. And the rest, as they say, is history. going to talk about what it feels like to play Resident Evil today versus when it was released almost 30 years ago, around 27 years ago at this point. So like we talked about, 
Resident Evil was the first title marketed as survival horror, and it truly does represent a unique game playing experience, or at least at a minimum, it presents a unique combination of various elements that, when taken as a collective whole, creates a brand new kind of game. So when you fire up Resident Evil for the first time, and by the way, I am talking about the original Resident Evil version released on the PlayStation 1, not the director's cut or the remake. Anyway, when you fire up the game, you're greeted with the first of several super cheesy full motion video sequences where you see someone running away from some sort of threat before eventually getting caught and killed. You guys all know, I love FMV in video games, and this kind of opening, although brief, was an immediate hook for me. As you begin the game, you're presented with a selection of two main characters to choose from, either Chris Redfield or Jill Valentine, and it's here that the game presents the first way that it heavily deviates from its inspirations like Alone in the Dark. Because the selection of what character to play as has a significant, profound impact on the game, and effectively, you're presented with an entirely different story, albeit with a similar overall narrative arc, depending on who you choose. Beyond that, certain game mechanics shift depending on the character you select. Just as an example, if you pick Chris, you'll be able to take more damage from the various zombies and creatures you encounter as you explore the game, which can be incredibly helpful. At the same time, though, you have more limited inventory space than Jill, with only six slots available throughout the entire game. Jill, by contrast, has eight inventory slots, but she takes a fair amount more damage than Chris does, making her a more fragile choice. At the same time, she also has access to more powerful weaponry earlier in your playthrough than what Chris does, while also having access to a lockpick because, as anyone who has played the game knows, Jill is the master of unlocking. That lockpick allows Jill to unlock a number of drawers, desks, and other objects without needing to use any of her inventory slots for disposable keys, while Chris needs to find and carry those keys on him in order to open any of those locked items. Now, I do want to spend a minute to talk about inventory management, because it's a mechanic that you will spend a lot of time using during your playthrough, especially when you play as Chris. In short, the act of figuring out what to carry with you and when is almost the equivalent of a puzzle itself and serves to increase the tension that you feel when playing the game. If you're not careful, you may find yourself without a free slot to pick up a critical item, which might make you have to return to one of several scattered item boxes to store other inventory items before having to return to pick up the critical item later on. If you already cleared the path of any monsters, cool, you're pretty much just going to have to walk through the empty hallways to reach your destination, because other than a scripted moment later in the game, there are no monster respawns, at least no re respawns that I had seen. If you decided to conserve ammo, though, and you left a bunch of zombies roaming the mansion, then you have to traverse that dangerous path once more, hopefully with taking only minimal damage. Compounding the danger is the fact that the game implemented a limited resource save system where you can only save your progress in certain locations, and in order to do so, you need to use an inventory item, an ink ribbon, that you do not have an unlimited supply of. What this means 
is that you have to be deliberate with when you save the game. And there is a very real chance that you will lose progress and have to replay certain sections of the game over if you die while exploring the game world. Even though ink ribbons are fairly plentiful, you may not have one on hand when you need one, which might once again force you to backtrack prior to moving on with your playthrough. I can't tell you the number of times where I had to return to an item box to rework my inventory or exchange items to actually allow me to progress in the game. Let's just say it was a lot. And I've played the game several times previously, so even with a general understanding of certain areas where specific items would be needed, I still needed to do some backtracking. But you know what? It never really felt cumbersome. It was just one of the ways the game made you make some difficult choices. Now, I should mention, though, that the original prototype for the game did not feature linked item boxes, meaning if you stored an item in a box somewhere, you would only be able to retrieve that item from that specific box. So let's say you're halfway across the mansion, and you realize that you need an item that you stored. You couldn't just return to the nearest item box. You had to go to the item box that you stored your desired item in. That, from my perspective would have been a bit crazy, and likely more cumbersome than many players would have liked, though the Resident Evil remake from the early 2000s does re-implement this feature in its real survival difficulty mode. From my perspective, though, you would have to be a true Resident Evil expert, or a bit of a masochist, for that kind of mechanic to truly be fun. But at least it is out there for anyone who wants to really test their skills. So, Inventory management is a key feature of the game, and part of that is managing scarce resources that you'll find throughout your playthrough, primarily healing items and ammunition for your weapons. The early parts of the game are definitely the most harrowing, and moving from screen to screen really creates the feeling that you're barely scraping by, especially if you decide to try to kill the zombies you encounter rather than avoiding them. As the game goes on, though, you'll find way more healing items and ammo than what you'll need, but the first hour or two that you spend in the mansion? Definitely a little bit tricky. Speaking of the zombies you encounter, there are actually a pretty good number of different creatures that you'll encounter throughout the game, with the base zombies being the easiest to deal with. They're pretty brainless, so it's not too difficult to trick them into moving in one direction while you juke around them, though there are still some narrow hallways where avoiding them becomes challenging. They also are much more dangerous in packs, and if you let yourself get surrounded by a bunch of them, good luck surviving. Later monsters are much trickier to deal with, especially the hunters that inhabit the later portions of the game. They're not that much more difficult to avoid than the base zombies, but they are much faster, and they do have a move that can decapitate you almost instantly and independently of how much life you still have remaining. Other monsters in the game include devil dogs, overgrown plants, a ridiculously sized snake, and several other creatures that all try to make your life more difficult. Luckily, you do have access to several different healing items, most prominently first aid spray, as well as a combination-based healing system using a variety of red, green, and blue herbs that you find throughout your playthrough. That herb combination system was actually pretty innovative back when the game first released, and even today, it feels like a natural part of the game world, and one that I enjoyed working with. Actually navigating the game world involves moving through a variety of screens, each of which is separated by some sort of door or other obstacle that, when passed through, results in a loading screen as the game progresses to the next area. 
These loading screens are actually an ingenious inclusion because they effectively hide the limitations of the original PlayStation hardware. Put simply, the PlayStation didn't have enough memory or horsepower to instantaneously load the rooms of the mansion as you'd progress through the game. So, the designers implemented a loading screen, where when you navigate through a door, the game cuts away to an animation of the door slowly opening against a black backdrop, with appropriate sound effects depending on the type of door that you're opening. So, a wooden door might slowly creak open, or a metal door might groan on its hinges as it moves. While modern games in the Resident Evil series don't have to worry about load times like this anymore, the original implementation does in fact increase tension, and while you might get a bit tired of seeing similar door animations every time you move from one room to another, at least it's not a traditional loading please wait kind of screen that many games used. Progress through the game is limited by including several locked doors and passageways, each of which needs to be unlocked with a specific key or item. And here once again, the act of inventory management becomes critical, as each key item that you carry takes up a precious inventory slot. This progression system of locked doors with specific symbols or key items needed for access has pervaded the entire Resident Evil series, and it's something that, for whatever reason, I find really compelling, even though it's not all that much different than having to find a colored key card in a first-person shooter. For some reason, Resident Evil's atmosphere and general setting makes it feel different to me, and I know I loved whenever I would find a new key because I knew that meant I'd be able to uncover additional secrets, horrors, and items that I didn't previously have access to, and that sense of discovery propelled me through the game. Speaking of discovery, the game contains very little hand-holding, other than setting up the general premise that you're trapped in a mansion with various undead creatures, and you have to somehow figure out how to survive. While there are some story beats that get told via traditional cutscenes, the majority of the story and lore of the game world are told by finding various notes, diary entries, and other documents that provide deeper insight into what's actually going on at the Spencer Mansion. I love the act of exploring, and I truly enjoy when a game has deeper lore in place than what appears on the surface, so this style of gameplay really works for me. I also should mention that the game does include some light puzzles and inventory manipulation kinds of scenarios, like needing to open a book to reveal a hidden compartment. I wouldn't say that any of those puzzles were particularly challenging, but I did enjoy the variety that they added to the experience. Before we move on to start talking about the more specific aspects of the game, like the graphics and the sound, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box for these games. I really enjoy looking at how different gaming companies marketed their titles, how they tried to get consumers to buy them. Because a lot of times, maybe not as much around when Resident Evil was released, but certainly a lot of times with our older games, we didn't necessarily have the ability to know what that game was going to be like before we bought it. Sure, we might have had magazine articles that we could reference, but we certainly didn't have YouTube where we could look up gameplay videos or anything like that. So a lot of times the buying decision that we made was based on what the box looked like when we actually picked it up in a video game or computer game store. So for Resident Evil, the back of the box says, You're dead scared. Face your fear. A series of gory attacks in the areas surrounding a remote biotech lab brings in STARS, Special Tactics and Rescue Squad, to investigate, 
On arrival, Bravo Team communications are abruptly cut off. Now, it's up to your team. You arrive at the isolated mansion, underpowered and on the run. Arm yourself with anything you can find. Knives, pistols, shotguns, flamethrowers. Search for hidden rounds to stay alive. There are puzzles to solve, traps to disarm, and mysteries to uncover while trying to avoid a bloodbath with the freaks of nature that populate the mansion. Each lurking horror you survive will bring you closer to the source of the Resident Evil. Unprecedented detail-intense texture maps, shadows, and lighting effects. Unique camera angles, action perspectives, and realistic polygon character graphics. Face unstoppable zombies, monstrous spiders, mutated snakes, and other unknown horrors. Explore hundreds of rooms in the gigantic mansion, secret underground lairs, the garden, graveyard, and guest houses to solve mind-bending mysteries and discover fascinating secrets. Ominous digital surround soundtrack adds to the rich and evil 3D environment and choose which soldier to play. Each creates their own graphic storyline. And then, of course, there are some screenshots on the back of the box, and I've got to say, that was incredibly effective from my perspective. I absolutely would have bought that if I saw it in the store, and in fact, I did buy it when I was younger. Now, I will say, that box that I just read was actually the long box version of this PlayStation, or the original PlayStation release. I do not own the long box version of Resident Evil, much to my chagrin. I do just own it in its jewel case form. For those who may be unaware, when the PlayStation first came out, their original releases were all long boxes, very similar to what you might have seen with the Sega CD or the Sega Saturn. So just a little bit of history there about the PlayStation itself. Regardless, I think they did a really nice job marketing the game on the back of the box. I would have definitely bought it. We're now going to move on and start talking about the more specific aspects of the game, and we're going to start by talking about the graphics. The majority of the visuals in the game consist of pre-rendered graphics, and I have to say, they look really good even today. The fact that all of the backgrounds and rooms in the game were pre-rendered means that the graphics maintain a degree of quality that exceeds what you'd see in other contemporary PlayStation titles that might try to use more dynamic 3D kinds of environments. And it's a design decision that I believe helps Resident Evil remain visually appealing regardless of its mid-90s release date. That being said, where the game does use 3D, like with the polygonal character models, the game's age definitely shines through. But those lower quality polygons are never distracting, and in a way, they're almost a little charming. I also need to call out the cinematic camera angles that the game used throughout each and every scene and pre-rendered environment, which once again I feel adds to the game's lasting appeal. How many games from the 90s have you played that have seriously odd camera controls, or ones where the camera simply goes nuts while trying to maintain its focus on your character? I'm guessing a lot, but you don't really have that issue here, because frankly, you don't have any control over the camera. Gamers used to more modern titles might be a little turned off a bit by that lack of control, but I personally appreciate the fact that the game represents the designer's cinematic vision for each scene, and that what we're all seeing on the screen is truly what its designers intended. By the way, like I mentioned earlier, there are a few cheesy FMV sequences included in the game as well, and those all look really good. 
the PlayStation was definitely capable of high-quality video, and that was used effectively, though sparingly, in Resident Evil. Moving on to the sound and music, all of the music in the game was understated, dread-inducing, and a perfect match to the visuals on the screen. There aren't any tracks that I'd listen to outside of the game, which I guess is a little bit of a con, but really, that's not what this music was supposed to be. The intent was to create an ambient auditory experience that made players feel terror and tension, and on that front, the music 100% succeeded. Sound effects are a bit more in-your-face, and from my perspective, they're pretty much all universally excellent. I particularly enjoyed the shuffling and growling sound of zombies waiting around a corner, where you can't really see them, but you know they're there because of the noise that they're making. Quite simply, the sounds and sound design in the game are excellent, and definitely serve to enhance the overall gameplay experience. That being said, I gotta talk about the voice acting, because holy cow, this is quite possibly one of the cheesiest amateur grab someone off the street and have them read lines kind of voice acting I have ever heard in a game. It is so, so bad. So much so that you will have a hard time believing that anyone could have actually listened to it and thought, well, that's the way a normal person sounds. And I am not exaggerating. The voice acting is atrocious. But it's also insanely fun to listen to, and it has that so bad it's good quality that I personally love. The technical aspects of the voice acting are simply horrible, but somehow it adds a degree of campiness that strangely makes the game feel more charming, and at least for me, put a smile on my face every time I heard one of their one-liners. Moving on to the narrative and story, you play as a member of the Special Tactics and Rescue Squad, or STARS, division of the Raccoon City Police Department. A prior STARS team had been sent to investigate a series of strange occurrences and murders on the outskirts of the town, but shortly after being dispatched, all communications stopped. The STARS team that you're assigned to is tasked with finding out what happened to that prior team, and shortly after beginning your search, a number of evil dog-like creatures attack, chasing you and several members of your team to a nearby mansion. You enter the mansion, not knowing what you might find, but knowing that whatever you find, it has to be better than being eaten by a devil dog. Maybe. As you begin to explore the mansion, you quickly discover that something odd is going on, and during the course of your playthrough, you'll learn more about the mansion's history, why people are trying to eat you, and what ultimately happened to the various stars' teams that had been sent to investigate the area. Your goal is to stay alive and, hopefully, escape to safety. So the story here is relatively simple, but for me, it really worked. I think the part I liked best about the whole narrative was how it was doled out via notes, diaries, and other kinds of passive discovery, including environmental exploration, rather than gigantic lore dumps storing cutscenes or character dialogue. It really made the whole thing seem mysterious, and I recall being really intrigued with the story the first time I played the game. Sure, replaying it now doesn't really shed any new light on the situation, but that doesn't diminish what it is, which is an interesting, engaging story that I legitimately enjoyed. Moving on to the playability and controls, 
Like we had talked about, Resident Evil was designed during a time that development teams didn't really know how best to allow players to control characters in three-dimensional environments, or how best to navigate three-dimensional perspective scenes. So when we talk about controls here, keep that fact in mind. Anyway, when you play Resident Evil, you have some fairly traditional controls coupled with some decidedly old-school kinds of mechanics. You move around the game world using your directional pad, as you might expect, but the way you navigate utilizes something affectionately known as tank controls. Tank controls, quite simply, represent a control scheme that defines your movement based on your character's orientation in the game world, rather than your perspective looking into a given scene. That might sound confusing, so let me explain it a little bit. In most modern control schemes, if you're moving a character through a scene, pressing up will move the character towards the top of the screen, while moving down, left, or right will move the character in those directions respectively. That movement happens regardless of which direction a character is facing, meaning if a character is facing the bottom of the screen and you press up on your control pad, the character will automatically turn around and move towards the top of the screen. In a tank control-based game, The direction you press on your control pad corresponds to the direction your character is facing. So, let's say your character is facing the bottom of the screen. In order to move towards the top of the screen, you actually have to press down on the control pad, which would make your character back up. Going towards the bottom of the screen, if you're already facing that direction, would similarly require you to press up on the control pad, since that symbolizes forward movement, and from your character's perspective, forward movement is facing the bottom of the screen. You know what, even with that revised description, that's probably still a little confusing. Basically, just recognize that tank controls are not like modern control schemes, but are rather a function of the time in which the game was created. I mention this to say that for many people, tank controls are not exactly intuitive, and I think the fact that Resident Evil uses tank controls might turn some people off to the game. From my perspective, though, as someone who lived through this era of gaming, Controlling Resident Evil immediately triggered my muscle memory, and I was able to control the game with no issue even today, although I will admit that I did occasionally mess up and accidentally walk into a zombie, most often after an unexpected camera angle change when I turned a corner. But I recognize that my experience might not be the norm, so for anyone who hasn't played the game before, consider this a warning that the control scheme will take some getting used to. Otherwise, the rest of the controls follow fairly typical control schemes you've likely seen in any number of games, with various face buttons used for world interaction and inventory access, while using your weapons requires a combination of using your shoulder button to aim or enter a combat stance, and another face button to swing or shoot your weapon. There's not really all that much to say with the controls, other than the tank control movement. The rest of the controls, and even the tank movement, works just fine. Beyond the controls, the actual act of playing Resident Evil is a decidedly old-school experience, with very little hand-holding, limited save opportunities, scarce item availability, and death waiting around every corner. And you know what? It is simply awesome. Now, a warning. You have to be in the mood for a more hardcore kind of experience before you play the game. If you're looking for something that will present a smooth experience... I would steer clear of this one. But if you're looking for a challenging but completely fair experience, Resident Evil has that in spades. It remains a quality experience and one that I have little, if anything, to complain about from an overall playability perspective. 
So how did it feel overall to play the game? Playing through Resident Evil is an experience that imparted feelings of dread, frustration, relief, anxiety, calm, eureka moments, and tension. It's a really interesting mix, and one that was 100% compelling and engrossing. Seriously, it felt amazing to play the game, even today, even in its original form, and I legitimately found myself getting sucked back into the experience, even though I've played it all the way through several times since it was originally released. For anyone who wants a few more creature comforts while still providing a challenging and even in some cases enhanced experience, the Resident Evil remake is simply awesome. I've played that version of the game as well, and I appreciate the additions that the game makes to the core Resident Evil formula, while also staying mostly true to its roots. If I were to pick the best version of the game to play, the remake is probably it, but the original still holds its own as an entirely worthwhile and quality gaming experience today. So what is our verdict? Where does Resident Evil sit in the overall context of video and computer gaming? Well, as we talked about, Resident Evil was the title that popularized the term survival horror and effectively defined an entire genre. And, despite being a very early attempt at a three-dimensional styled game, it pretty much knocks it out of the park in all respects. This is a game that for all intents and purposes remains as good today as it ever has been, with the only potential complaint from my perspective being the outdated control scheme. Even there, though, I still thought the game felt great to play. This is one of those titles that transcends the time it was released in, which is why, for me, Resident Evil is absolutely deserving of a spot in our pantheon of classic gaming. While future Resident Evil releases would refine the formula and provide a smoother, even more engaging experience, the original Resident Evil remains a landmark release in video game history and is absolutely a title that you owe it to yourself to experience. It is, quite simply, a classic. That was our episode on Resident Evil. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about games and classic technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I do have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt, and we also have a Discord server with the link in the show notes included with this episode. Discord is probably the best way to join the discussion because there's a lot of people out there on the server and we really do enjoy talking about all this kind of stuff. So if you want to talk about it more, feel free to join or just shoot me a note via any of those mechanisms as well. Totally fair, whatever you all prefer to do. I also should mention that we do have a Patreon. That is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if anybody wants even more classic gaming today goodness, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. Before we sign off the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is focused on Adventure Island for the NES. So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience. 
At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast aggregation engines, and it would be great if you would feel so inclined to leave a review. This is not about bolstering star counts or trying to harvest a bunch of five-star ratings, though if that happens, awesome, it means we're doing something right. No, what this is really all about is gathering the feedback necessary to make this the best possible podcast it can be. The only way to do that is to get feedback from the community to make sure that the content that I'm delivering hits the mark and really is what you all want to listen to. We get new listeners every day, which is awesome. The only way to maintain that traction and to continue to deliver quality content is to make sure we get that feedback to deliver and create the best possible podcast imaginable. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Adventure Island. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>